this morning, if you would, to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, certainly follow along with the insert that's found in your bulletin. For those of you who are visiting, uh, this is our fourth study in this Old Testament book. This Old Testament book written by an unknown author that recounts the history of the nation of Israel somewhere between the mid-14th, late-13th century B.C. to the mid-11th century B.C. for those history buffs among us that care about such dates. It's an old book. It's an ancient book. And it's a book about a very dark period in Israel's life, Israel's national and spiritual life is slowly spiraling downward as God's people abandon Him and they turn to worship and serve the idols around them. Though this is our fourth time opening this book together, this is actually our first week out of the introduction. Uh, So the last three weeks have been in what is known as the prologue of the book of Judges, and this week we finally jump out of that prologue that has set the stage for all that is to come, and today it gets real. It gets real, real fast. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word with me out of honor for His Word. And I'm going to divide, I don't normally do this, but just for the sake of, I think, clarity, I'm going to divide the section into two readings. I won't make you stand for the second part, but we're going to begin this morning by simply reading Judges 3, 7 to 11, and then we will move on from there later in the sermon. Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 7, stopping in verse 11. Listen as I read. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishinthayim, king of Mesopotamia, the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathatayim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishanthayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishanthayim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. 
Two realities from this passage this morning that I want us to meditate on for the next few minutes. Two pearls, really, amidst this darkness. We've spent a couple weeks talking a lot about sin, about our idolatry, for instance, last week, the week before, about our, the danger of losing the next generation. Well, today, I want us to talk and focus our hearts on deliverance. And that's the first point. Deliverance is a work of God's grace alone. Deliverance is a work of God's grace alone. We all love those stories of of self-redemption, those stories of individuals pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. This is not one of those stories. You already heard me pray today that we are not here to figure out how to do that. We're not here to give ourselves attaboys. We're not here to commend one another for turning things around. Our passage begins this morning with this simple declaration that we'll heal that we will hear over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Despite Yahweh's covenant with them, a people of no consequence, of no might in and of themselves, despite His rescue of them from slavery in Egypt, parting the Red Sea before their very eyes, His strong arm displayed under Joshua, the tumbling walls of Jericho, they forgot the Lord. And as we spoke of last week, like a spouse, it's the picture the Spirit plants in our minds, like a spouse, they hoard themselves. after other gods. And as a result, they've kindled the anger of the Lord, an anger we've already looked at is jealous and and just and, and true. And now as the narrative continues, as the story continues in the book of Judges, we see that they now must begin to reap the consequences of their sin. Because sin always has consequences. We believe the lie that it won't. We believe the lie that it'll be okay. But it never is. And on a national scale among this people group, they violated their covenant with their God. And the violation of that covenant must be dealt with. And so, As we begin to look at this text, the sovereign Lord of history sells his people. Did you see that phrase in in verse 8? He sold them into the hands of their enemies. Now note, he is not casting them off. This is not punitive He's chastising them. The Lord is unwilling to allow them to be comfortable in their adultery. He is going to loosen their grip 
on their idols. He will not abandon them, but they will experience bondage. They will experience pain. And it comes under the hand of Cushan Rishanthayim. Now, we don't know much about this enemy that the Lord raises up in order to take his people over, in order for them to feel the consequences of their sin. But we know, even in this brief brief passage, that he was brutal. His name literally means double wickedness. That's probably not the name he gave for himself, but it's a nickname that the Israelites gave to him, which is why it's repeated so many times in this account. This is King Cushan, the doubly wicked king. And for eight long years, God's people languish as a result of their idolatry, as a result of their sin. They're oppressed by him. And just that whole scene that I've just painted for us, as we bring God's word and that history into our lives, into our existence, I guess the first question I want us to think about and consider is, does God still work in this way? What I mean by that is, does God allow ever the consequences of our sin to be felt by us in order that we might be drawn back to Him? Let me read for you Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11. The writer of the Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline then you are illegitimate children and not sons for the moment of all discipline seems painful for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it and so for God's people here in judges chapter 3 this is the beginning of their quote unquote salvation as king cushion double wickedly double wicked king Cushion comes into their midst and begins to work on them. It's the work of God's grace in their lives, bringing them to the end of themselves. He does that with us sometimes. It's not to say that everything we experience in this broken and wicked world is discipline. But God does allow at times painful circumstances that we might cry out to Him and remember that deliverance is a work of God's grace alone. And crying out is exactly what happens in our text. It took eight years. It took a while, but God's people finally cried out to Yahweh. Now, we don't know the nature of their cries was Were their cries simply cries of pain? 
cries of exhaustion, or they, were they truly cries of repentance? We don't know, but what we do know is they were directed to the Lord. They were directed to Yahweh. It was an acknowledgement that the idols that they had turned to, that the idols that they were serving would do them no good. They needed the God of their fathers, and the God of their fathers hears and responds and sends them, by His grace, a deliverer. His name is Othniel. He's the first judge, which I told you at the beginning of our study, when you think of judge, don't think of robe and gavel. Think of military leader. Think of uh, deliverer. Othniel is raised up, and we've actually already met him in our study, though when we studied chapter one, we we kind of skipped his story a bit. We didn't talk about it much because we are returning to it this morning. He was the one you remember, and you can flip back in chapter one and see this for yourself. He was the one who responded to Caleb's call to capture Kiriath Sefer. And Othniel stood up and said, I'll do it. And he did it. And Caleb gave him his daughter, Aksa, as Othniel's wife. Now, why is that significant? Well, it gives us a little bit of more about who this first judge is. But it's significant because Othniel in doing that, is doing exactly what all of Israel should have been doing. And what do I mean by that? Othniel has already proven himself in this book as a man of God who is willing to take hold of the promises of God in seizing the land that God has promised for His people in marrying each other rather than marrying others out of the pagan nations around them, settling down, expanding their territory, building a family. Oxford, remember, she was the one who after this went back to her father and said, Dad, I want the land with the springs of water. I want the good land. Now, what does that tell us about Aksa? It tells us she was a strong, godly woman herself who was ready to claim the promises and to begin to build a life for her family in the land of promise. And so when we come to Othniel and this strong woman by him, his side, Aksa, we, we literally start at the top. We start at the top in terms of judges. It all goes downhill from here pretty quickly. But Othniel here is a hero from the conquest, given the Spirit of the Lord to restore Israel's rights. And, and his story is brief. It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit vanilla, particularly compared to the guy who's about to come. But all the more, that puts the focus, I think, on where the focus belongs, on Yahweh Himself. This is not about Othniel, as honorable as he was, as godly as he is. This is about the fact that deliverance comes from the Lord alone. Deliverance is a work of grace. 
And so as God provides Othniel, as he leads, the land rests, it says, for 40 years, more than the absence of war and military conflict. This is, this is human flourishing that God's people experience from the Lord. And this is the same thing, brothers and sisters, that God offers to us today through the gospel. Rest, deliverance, something greater than a, a land and a land flowing with milk and honey and human flourishing, but eternal rest through Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We read it earlier. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This rest is a work of grace. It begins by crying out to the Lord in repentance and in faith, and it ends with the sending of deliverance. And so I guess the first thing I want us to just think about in regards to Othniel is not specifically about Othniel, but it's about the God of Othniel. It's about rejoicing and resting and receiving God's gracious deliverance in Christ. And yes, acknowledging that God is at work in the difficult places even in our lives, but the sovereign Lord of history is at work in pointing you to Himself, in driving you to your knees. That's the first thing I want us to consider from Judges chapter 3. Now let's think more about the nature of that deliverance. Deliverance is a work of God's grace alone. As we could pick up the story and finish the text for this morning, the picture becomes quite different. You can remain in your seats, but listen as I read Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. Excuse me, 31. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in their sight. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him, excuse me, sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. 
And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool, in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took out the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor." Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him, and they seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Our first point was deliverance is a work of grace a work of God's grace alone. What I want us to see from this second passage, this second part, is this. The Lord uses unlikely deliverers. Deliverance is, yes, it's a work of grace and grace alone, but I want us to recognize that the Lord uses unlikely deliverers. We love the Born series in our home. This kind of reads a little bit like a Jason Bourne movie. The elusive assassin who's out for justice. As we jump from verse 11 to verse 12, we fast forward. The year is now about 1300 B.C. Israel has already been in the land of promise for about 100 years. The honorable Othniel has died, and here we go again. The same cycle repeats itself, but this time, this time God, God surprises He surprises in two ways. He surprises one by by continuing to save a people who keep forgetting him and keep whoring themselves after other gods, but two, by saving in the way that he does here. This is one of those passages that as as a covenant kid who grew up in Sunday school, well, you remember this story, especially as a boy. But let me tell you, this is one of those stories that when you're a seminarian, you don't even think about preaching. But here I am, 16 years later. What what are we to think of this account? 
This, this PG-13, Jason Bourne-type movie scene in God's Word. Well, where I want us to begin, beyond the obvious point that this is God's Word, and that as I prayed, everything in it is by His design, not by our design, where I want us to begin is I want you to hear this story. I want you to think about these characters as an Israelite. You and your family have been living in the hill country, let's say. Sure, you you aren't walking in the ways of the Lord. You have forgotten Yahweh. But you're trying to make ends meet. But you're struggling. You are struggling under the taxation of this new dictator king, King Eglon, this leader of an old alliance of old enemies. You're almost humiliated that he is leading you. His appearance makes it even worse. And while he literally, literally gets fat off of revenue that he's taken from the mouths of your children, he perches himself in the city of Palms, which is Jericho, by the way, the symbol of Yahweh's victory, the symbol of Yahweh's power, the national glory of taking the promised land. Would you, as an Israelite, get any satisfaction from King Eglon's demise? Would any of the details of his fall from grace bring you enjoyment? I remember as an American, when they were reporting on the death of Osama bin Laden, and I remember wanting to know this man who had been behind the murder of thousands and thousands of innocent people, I wanted to know how he died. This was, after all, this was justice being served. This was wickedness being tamped out. Yeah, did he beg for mercy? Was he defiant to the end? Tell me the story. In the same way, this this account from God's Word carries with it this, this dark, biting humor. Eglon, we'll talk about him in a moment, he is, he's mocked as an enemy of God, and his idols are mocked as well. And while we ought not think that the actions of Ehud, of of God's deliverer, that everything is condoned by the Lord, you can imagine maybe that God's people for generations upon generations told this story with some enjoyment at the surprising way that God used an unlikely deliverer to bring about their salvation. Could Yahweh have taken care of Eglon in some boring vanilla way? Of course he could have. But Psalm 126 states, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream that our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. 
So let's talk a little bit about the story. Eglon, his name is rich with symbolism. It literally means little calf. And of course, that's the funny thing. He's not little. He's huge. So we might say Eglon is a little, huge, fattened calf who has enslaved God's people under his thumb and is ripe to be sacrificed, to be taken care of. And the one who God raises up is Ehud. Perhaps his parents struggled when he was born because his name means, where is the divine glory? And in contrast to Othniel, there is no reference here to the Spirit of the Lord being upon him. It's clear that the Lord has raised him up as the sovereign Lord of history, that the Lord is going to use him, but he is this sneaky, left-handed man, ironically from the tribe of Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Do you see all the humor embedded in this story, all the irony embedded in this story? In the ancient world, just like it is today, right-handedness was more common and was therefore thought of more positively. Left-handedness was less common, and that's significant in the story. It's significant because Ehud wasn't seen as a threat when he came to bring tribute to Eglon, when he was examined or patted down because, because a right-handed fighter would have drawn from his left side, he would have drawn his sword from his left side, when his left side was patted down, there was nothing there. And it's also speculated that Ehud's right hand was disabled in some way, which had to do with him being left-handed. We don't know that much detail. What we know is that the fact that he strapped his sword to his right thigh means no one thought about it. So Ehud, chosen among the people to bring the annual tribute to the king, begrudgingly, I'm sure, comes up with a plan. There's no indication that no one knows, that anybody knows the plan other than Ehud. But there are seven steps to carry it out. These seven steps are mine. It's just a way to get us through the story. Step one, craft a concealed carry sword. Step two, deliver the demanded tribute to the little calf king and leave just like normal. Step three, turn around by yourself near the idols of Gilgal. Now, this detail could merely be highlighting the pervasiveness of idolatry in the land at this time, or it could be because the location he has turned around at was, was ripe with idols. And so that was part of the story as he came back to Eglon. I've got a word from the Lord for you. I've got a word from a God for you. Step four, tell King Eglon that you've got a message from God. Now, here comes Ehud again. He's already been here no harm, no foul. There's nothing on his left side. So the gullible king lets him in. Eagerness to hear divine wisdom dismisses everyone. Step five, assassinate Eglon. The details are gruesome. They're so gruesome, they're almost comical. But Eglon, this pagan oppressive king, is done. Now all he needs to do is escape, and that's step six. Locking the doors is one thing, 
But how's he going to get out? Well, he locks the doors, and the details of the excrement, let's just say, are important because they prevent his attendants from coming in. They literally think he's going to the bathroom. And so they leave him alone, and there's plenty of time for Ehud to get away. And this, of course, also adds some humiliation to this hated enemy who falls at the hands of an Israelite. And so Ehud escapes. The writer adds the detail in verse 26 that as he escapes, he runs past the idols, the lifeless idols who are powerless to stop him. And then step seven, start an uprising. And it is this spark that the Lord uses to bring in this next season, this next cycle of rest. Another gracious deliverance by the hand of Yahweh. But what are we supposed to learn from this? I found a great quote that I want to read for you. I would have said it in a different way in my own words, but I'm afraid I'd use too many of his words. He says, the glory of this text is that it tells us that Yahweh is not a white glove standoffish God out somewhere in the left field of the universe who hesitates to get his right arm dirty in the yuck of our lives. The God of the Bible does not hold back in the wild blue yonder somewhere waiting for you to pour Clorox and spray Lysol over the affairs of your life before he will touch it. Whether you can comfortably put it together or not, he is the God who delights to deliver his people even in their messes and likes to make them laugh again. He is the God who allows weeping to endure for a night, but sees that joy comes in the morning. The Lord is pleased to use unlikely deliverers. Even Shamgar, who just gets one verse, verse 31 By the sound of his name, he's not even an Israelite. And yet through him, through this ox goad, which is essentially this eight-foot-long cattle prod, the Lord holds off a Philistine threat. The Lord uses unlikely deliverers. As we close, and we got to close, this is an encouragement to us, I think, on on a couple different levels. Number one, If the Lord uses unlikely deliverers, He uses me, (laughs) and He uses you. Not in the same dramatic way as we see here, not to the same scale that we see here, but as agents of reconciliation, as agents of restoration, as agents of renewal. He used Moses, who didn't want to speak. He used a donkey that he gave speech to. And whatever and whomever he wants to in between. I've read it to you a hundred times. First Corinthians 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. At least for me, as I digest this, it's a, it's a wonderful reminder. It's a confidence builder. 
if God uses unlikely deliverers, He can use me in my mess. He can use you in yours. But secondly, and this is an appropriate way for us to close, if the Lord uses unlikely deliverers, let's think about His Son. (laughs) Born in a manger, in a backwoods region of Israel, here is the most unlikely of deliverers. What does Isaiah say about Him? He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, no beauty that we should desire Him. Nathaniel in John chapter 1 exclaims, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And indeed, good comes. And this is no flash in the pan hero. This is one who brings hope once for all. This is more than a deliverer who inspires for a moment. This is one who has the power to truly change hearts. And how does He do it? Not by taking a life, but by giving a life, His own. And as a result, Colossians 2 says, and we'll end with this, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and He triumphed over them. But what's the phrase I left out? He put them to open shame. God's deliverance is a work of grace, and He uses unlikely deliverers. Let's rejoice in that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your work through these men, for storytelling that that surprises us and shocks us and yet reminds us of the kind of God that You are. A God who is not standoffish, but a God who has entered into our mess and our muck. A God who became one of us. That we might enjoy the joy of justice. Not wrath coming upon our own heads, for we are hidden in the righteousness of our Savior but the justice of those who mock and who refuse to turn. Oh, Father, I pray that You would send Your Spirit into the hearts and lives of Your people, that You would take this message, that which is from You, may it be digested and applied, that which is not, may it be quickly forgotten, but use it in the lives of Your people for their encouragement, for their confidence, for your use, your good work of them in this world. Father, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.